she could hear you loud and clear in the, well, in the restroom. The <laughs> I, I hope all of you. I hope all of you, if you plan to come to the next talk, don't end up going to the bathroom and listening to it. <laughs> there were crowds in there, Doctor Bob. What? Say again. There were crowds in there listening. <laughs> you guys. Oh God, what to do with you guys? <laughs> but I didn't have any problem hearing. Yeah, I'm going to talk with um, Ricky Shoup, who's. He, he he was having a, he was expecting a child any day, and I think that's why the the confusion at the beginning. I was really sorry because it threw me off. It you know it started much much later than I wanted and um, had to wing a lot of it. But um, I'm going to talk with Ricky about things and and this weekend to try to get everything set up for the final talk. So I um, I'll, and I'll mention this. I hope it's better. Um, I, I don't know if they're going to stream it, if it's going to be available, but but anyway, I was glad to be there. It was just so good. Um, I can't tell you what it meant to give Connie a hug and Kay and shake hands with David and see Karen and, you know, all of you guys. It was a, just a pleasure seeing you. God. I'm going to try and get it up. I don't know what, this, what the recording will be like, but we're going to try and get oh, it up. Oh, yeah. The, um, and, you know, we recorded. I don't think the quality's great, but but you can adjust the volume, but we're going to put it on the web so anybody who wants to listen to it, you know, can go online. Let's, um, can you, uh, let's get started. Um, Doc, can you get the Bible? There, it's, and can, can you find the Nicodemus? Do you remember if it's John 1 or something? Um, I, don't, I don't have a lyric for this tonight. And I'm not going to try to get one. I'm going to let the lyric go tonight. I'm going to see if I can't pull up the reading for today and, and just do the reading as our opening. But any any prayers, you guys? I'm sorry. I always have somebody to pray for. Don't be um, sorry. Don't be sorry. Not sorry, but... Um, my um, my nephew and his wife lost their baby at five months, and man, it was just it's just so tough for them. They have a little boy, uh, but this was their second child, and uh, five months, and they actually had a funeral, and they were able to hold it. And but I just like to lift them up in prayer. Connie, what's their names? Uh, uh, Randy and Sereny. S E R A N Y. S E R. A-N-Y. Sereny. And their child's name, a boy? It was a boy. You know what? I didn't, I didn't even ask my sister-in-law if it was a boy. Would you get real here, Connie? you got a task to I do. Know. you got homework next week. You know what? I either asked him and I probably forgot. It would be more likely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they did. They did have a little service for, for yeah. the baby. You know? If you see them, ask their name, because I'd really like to speak his yes, name absolutely. in our prayers. Have next week. Yeah. Um, I have another baby to add. Yeah. Go ahead, Melanie. Um, Eddie, uh, my friend Eddie's, uh, I don't know if it's a granddaughter or a grandson, but uh, the baby was born premature, and they're just asking for prayers. So my, it's my friend Eddie's granddaughter. Do you know, the, do you know her name? Grandbaby. Do you know her name? No. I do not. You have work to do too. I know. 
Oh God. Do you have the Nicodemus? And then I have a friend, oh, good. Andrea, it's, it's a, who had COVID and it caused it? her throat to close up. So she's lost a lot of weight. And she's she's trying to regain her strength. But if we could pray for Andrea, that would be super. This is a friend. Yes. Okay, let's do you have it. Thanks. I should have. Yeah, yeah. We have a dear friend and neighbor who passed away yesterday. A wonderful guy, professor of history at Dallas Baptist University, retired, um, great Christian, Protestant, uh, but he was a great guy, and his wife is, of course. Who's sorry? Who's asking for? Is that Karen? This Karen. Karen, is that Karen? Yes. God, sorry. I was trying to. I. I have. I have a hard time holding on to names. It's getting worse and worse for me. Wish you guys would keep me in your prayers. But Karen, say that again. What? Say. Sorry, I was distracted. Say it again. Who passed away yesterday? Who passed away? Neighbor. A dear friend and neighbor. And her name. His name. Uh, his name was Barry Starn. Barry? Gary. Gary. God. Okay, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Boy, I'm not going to remember this. It's just... Um, um, thank you, Lord, for the gift of this day, for... Your presence with us, um, and for this Easter season, still, I wish everybody here a blessed, happy Christmas. That Easter, or sorry, Easter. God, that, um, and I'm asking that all the efforts that we made to discipline ourselves, whatever we began, even if they broke on Easter, they usually do. That we carry them forward, um, practice the self-denial and. Um, whatever it is we took on during Easter Lent, and but do it now in a spirit of um, being risen. Um, our belief is that in, um, we don't just go through a commemoration; that we reenact these moments, just like the sacrifice in Mass. That on Easter we're with you in the belief that we share in your risen life. Something in us is changing, even if we. Don't always see it as well as we should. It's there. Um, give us the eyes to see it. But let all of us continue those efforts, carry them forward in what we're doing, knowing that they draw us closer to you and, and uh, make us instruments of your will, that we're more able to bring you to the world in whatever we do. Um, I ask a blessing on the work that we do always. Um, stay open to this work and, more importantly, not just... Um, learn it and think it in our heads, but make it real in our actions. Live it. Take what we learn to the world in what we do. Um, let's see. God, I'm sorry. Randy and Sereny, Connie, the baby. Um, yes. What happened? Uh, five months. She just she lost the baby at five months. Yeah, Con. Yeah. Monday night we learned that. Um, um, Twins had been born, stillborn. Um, boy, I don't know what's... Um, and the woman who asked for the prayer said it was tragic. It, it's awful. 
And it, for both couples, and in some more concrete way for women, they carry life in them. And then, um, here's my prayer for Randy and Sereni and for their baby, um, most especially for them. The baby's in good hands. Um, baptize that baby in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't know if it was. Let it be baptized. But let the spirit parents go ahead, um, enjoy, even during their suffering, knowing that when their life is over, um, and hopefully they will be with you, they will have a surprise waiting for them. Um, that that child they lost will be there. Our belief is grace perfects nature. Nobody goes to God who isn't perfect. So whatever form they take there will be complete. That's who they'll be. Christ is not going to hold our, our nature against us. Um, so let them carry some hope of a promise that when they go there, there will, um, they will um, be greeted with a surprise and that their joy will be greater um, for that surprise. Um, sorry, Eddie, somebody help. Who, who is... It's Eddie's grandbaby. And I don't know if it's a boy or a girl, but the baby was born premature, so we're just asking Praying young. Um, be with that child. Um, surround it with your protection. Help see it through this difficulty. Um, premature babies are not uncommon, so there's no reason for alarm at this point, but watch over it, protect it. See it through this period so that it can recover its health and its normalcy. Um... Sorry, Karen, the um, Gar Gary is his name, yeah? Just died? Yeah. Gary just yeah. Um, thank God for neighbors like Karen and Bob. Um, receive Gary into your kingdom. Um, wash away his sins. Forgive him. Pardon him, please. I don't know him, but we don't need to know. We, what we do know is um, our faith matters. So here are prayers. Um, their friend, receive him into your kingdom. If there is a time in purgatory, let our prayers help him. And um, let his awareness of that deepen his gratitude, his joy going forward. Um, Andrea and what's, I can't. Andrea has, uh, she's recovering from a bad case of COVID. That's right, so. that's right. Watch over her. Um, once again, surround her with your protection. See her through. Um, help is around the corner for so many of us with COVID, but um, some people are at risk. But watch over her. Protect her, please. I'm sorry, am I leaving somebody out? Did anybody ask for a prayer I've forgotten here? Our, our neighbor next door was hospitalized for a week, and we just found out... Um, Jeff and Barbara, watch over them, please. Um, help heal Jeff. He's he's still young and um, down. Um, so watch over him, please. See him through this. Give him the protection he needs to get back on his feet and be with Barbara. Um, she has to nurse him through this. Um, it's not going to be an easy time for her. In all of these things, our trust is you are a good God. There is, this is Boethius. There is no bad fortune. 
The trouble with us is where we stand watching it or aware of it. Help us to stay close to you so that we're aware that no matter what's going on, you're at work doing something, even if it involves us in some suffering in the meantime. Strengthen all of us in our faith. Um, We offer these prayers, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, In place of a lyric, I'm going to do the reading for this morning. I've I've got to get, just to look ahead, you know that I've been um, saying that we were going to do this um, long poem, this long narrative poem by um, E.A. Robinson. It's an American poet from the last century. It's casual. It's not directly religious in the way that most of the lyrics. It's informal. It's funny. It's, It's about a young boy watching two uncles get old. So it, it's a good laugh at ourselves. Um, I mean, I, most of us, Melody's too young, but the rest of us know. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a tender, touching poem. It's a narrative poem. It's just his awareness of these two old men, and it's, it's funny. It's long. So I'm going to, if you would all go online and get it, it's Robinson's called, um, God. Um, Archibald. And- Isaac and Archibald. Isaac and Archibald. Look at it, take it to bed with you, read it. It's a charming, touching poem. There's nothing intensely religious about it, but it's about death. You know, it's, uh, death is coming for these two old men, and they're changing, and um, both of them remind me of Suzanne and me. I mean, we, we cannot spend a day without coming into a room and asking what we're doing there and what we just forgot two minutes earlier, and, and I'm afraid it's happening more with me than it is with her, but... Anyway, it's a funny poem. It's a funny poem. So, pick it up and read it, and we'll we'll do it for the next few weeks. Okay, but for tonight, what I'd like to do, just to to hold on to this time that we set aside, is do the reading from this morning because it's always appropriate. This is the reading, and it's from the Gospel according to John. Jesus said to Nicodemus, "You must be born from above. The wind blows where it will." And you can hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Whithersoever the the Spirit listeth. That's the King James thing. Whithersoever the Spirit listeth. Wherever he wishes, wherever he goes. So the wind is an image of things that go on here in life. It's familiar to us. We all know the wind. Um, We hear it in the leaves outside when it gets windy at night or during the day. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can this happen? Jesus answered and said to him, You are the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand this? Amen, amen. I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen. But you people do not accept our testimony. Remember, um, Nicodemus belongs to the Israel, um, the Jewish community. You do not accept our testimony. If I tell you about earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who's come down from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent into the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Okay. Let's do Dante. Um, 
I'm not sure that we can do this next week, but um, I'd, I'd like to go into next week thinking, oh, thanks, dog, um, that we'll finish the Paradiso. That may be expecting too much, but um, we've been taking eight cantos, or I've been trying to hold myself to eight cantos. We don't always do that, and that's okay, but but if you all could finish the Paradiso, I'd like to approach next week with the idea that we can finish it. And the week, what I'll do is send you a, um, some Shakespeare plays that I thought we could do afterwards. I'm going to check in with you guys and see what your feelings are about continuing. You know, we've been doing this for a while, and I, I don't want to take people for granted. So next week I'm going to send a letter to you and, and suggest some Shakespeare plays. Oh, sorry. No, it'll be, it'll be Chaucer. Chaucer, um, who's very funny and very Catholic. He's probably the most Catholic pe person besides Dante of all the people who were explicitly Catholic, anyway. But I thought we could do some short stories of, of um, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and then do some Shakespeare. But I'm going to check with you guys. I'm going to write a letter, so just expect a letter next week, okay? Okay, um, a quick review of the last couple of weeks. Up through last week, um, we were dealing with those cantos that, um, that are about Dante and Beatrice's rise through the heaven. Dante had undergone um, his, pur his purgation, his purification, and that reckoning with Beatrice, and they ascended the heavens. It's at that point that Dante is going to learn things about his faith that are beyond the powers of our natural reason. Beatrice is not going to be less um, likely to use her powers of reason. You know that. She uses reason all the time. But she's using reason to open mysteries that Virgil could not have opened to him. So we went from the moon um, to Mercury and Venus and, and to the sun. And um, in, in that stage of Dante's journey, we dealt with a number of important issues. Vows, um, God's justice, you know that the Canto 5 or Canto 7 in the Perdiso is one of the most important, I believe, in the whole book because it explains the crucifixion, why it was a just act and why it was an unjust act and why that, para that paradox is so essential to our Christian life. We are called to be just. We have to bring a justice to the world. But we also have to bring to those efforts to be just a mercy that people don't deserve. It's what we hope for ourselves. So it's one of the most important cantos of the whole Paradiso. Um, and we, um, we entered the heaven of Venus, and it was there that, remember, we met Cunis and Fouquet. It's, one of, it's certainly one of my favorite. <laughs> Maybe I'm giving my sins away here. I, um, but I, I, I don't think it's just my sins. It's a delightful, it's a delightful um, canto because we we see how we see clearly one of the marks of paradise that people in paradise live in a state of having been forgiven. So there's no guilt. There's no shame. Um, whatever was sinful in their lives has turned into a blessing. It had to be answered, um, but whatever that particular bent, whatever that particular proclivity was, it was the means of a greater glory in heaven. So on page 441, 
when Dante meets them, um, Cuniza describes herself in terms of passion. Both he and I were born from the same root. Cuniza was my name, and I shine here, for I was overcome by the star's light, but gladly I myself forgive in me. She's in othering, in forgiving God in her. That spirit is present in her. Um, but gladly I myself forgive myself what causes my fate. It grieves me not at all, which might seem strange indeed to earthly minds. Fouquet will say something similar to that, remember, and um, we'll go from him to Rahab, who was the prostitute who let the promised um, people come into the kingdom. So Dante's dealing very explicitly with passions and the body, and um, it, it's from here, remember, we go to the sun, where we meet St. Thomas, um, who, who um, gives this great peon, this praise um, of St. Francis. He describes St. This is really interesting because this is, this is close to the center of the Paradiso. All of these central cantos deal with passions, or eros, with love, with the erotic. Cuniza, Fulke, Rahab. St. Thomas describes St. Um, Francis in erotic terms. He's a courtly lover pursuing the beloved. And when we go through his long narrative, we realize at the end of it, because St. Thomas was never explicit about it, that St. Francis's beloved was poverty, that he embraced her in, in the way humans embrace things. He wanted to be, he wanted to be without as his way of being more completely with God, with Christ. And um, shortly after that, remember, um, St. Thomas and his circle of Dominicans is surrounded by another circle of Franciscans. And Bonaventure steps forward and does the same thing with Thomas, that he, he offers a paean, a praise of um, St. Dominic, the founder of the Dominicans. So what we, we see here in these middle cantos is um, that passions, earthly passions, um, were all transformed into graces so that in heaven what takes place are these exchanges of courtesy. There's nothing but poetry. There's stars and dancing and singing. There can be nothing there that's dry or, you know, pedantic or everything's a joy. Everything's a joy. Um, and um, Dante comes out of that that exchange with, remember that question that St. Thomas left him with when he was talking about um, um, those who get too fat, who, who are indulging themselves too much, because Thomas is being very critical of both orders, both men, that both orders had become corrupt, too given to the world, too given to pleasures, and, um, and it, it left Dante with these questions. I want to go back to where we left off for a minute. Um, because in some ways it, it brings to a conclusion um, all that all that Dante um, has been doing up to this point. Hold on. Um, on page 468 he's got these questions about those who fatten remember and St. Thomas speaks to the um, corruptions in the church. 
But Dante's got another question on his mind, and it has to do with the um, glory of the body. So the the human body becomes the central focus here in the very middle of, or close to the middle of the of the uh, Perdiso on page four seventy two. It um, it reads this way. This man, though he cannot express his need and has not even thought the thought as yet, must dig the roots of yet another truth. This is one of the amazing things that's happening, and we experience it more and more the farther, the higher we get up Perdiso. That the souls there can see a thought even before the person has it. Now hold on to that, because I don't, don't, I don't want to rush over that. What he's saying is, and I'm trusting everybody knows the truth of this, that at the root of our soul, we are made in the image of God. So at the root of our soul, there's a light going on there that we don't always see. You know that because sometimes something will come to you and it leaves you wondering, where did that come from? Where did, where did, I get, where did that thought I just have come from? Yeah, I'm sure that happens to all of you guys. Um, where did that thought come from? St. Augustine called it illumination. It's, it's, some, it's what, it, what we would call the, sub, the, the spiritual subconscious or the spiritual unconscious. Freud would have no notion of that. He was too bound by a somatic sense of things, a physical animal sense of things. But not so for a Christian. It's a, we could call it a spiritual unconscious, that it's, it's that nocturnal place, that dark place in the soul. It's darkness to us because it's a light to God. It's like trying to look at the sun. We can't look at it. Um, it has to come through our body. It has to be incarnated. But those lights come. So in the Paradiso, it should be no surprise that people can see a thought even before Dante has it. Um, it's only a reflection that there are things going on in him that he doesn't quite see. And I'm trusting all of you know that about ourselves. I mean, that there's a lot going on in us that we don't always see very clearly, and we come, hopefully we come to see more and more clearly as we age, but that's an ongoing fact here. So... Beatrice, speaking in those terms, explain to him about the radiance with which this, your substance blooms. Will it remain eternally, just as it shines forth now? That's the first question, too. And if it does remain, explain to him how, once your sight has been restored, you can endure the brilliance of each other's form. So the first question has to do with... Um, um, our flesh and the nature of seeing things. And the second has to do with the, um, the resurrection of the body. At the final times when the body's resurrected for every one of us, the body will be returned, and we know that it's going to be transformed. Dante wants to know if recovering our body is going to dull our sights because the bodies <laughs> are duller than the spiritual activities of our mind. On page 473. Um, this is the answer. Our brilliance is in ratio to our love, our ardor to our vision, and our vision to the degree of grace vouchsafed to us. If I can make this simple, he's saying vision precedes love. We can't love what we don't know. We only love in proportion to the degree to which we see things. And so often the way we see things depends on the graces given to us. How open are we to seeing things? Let me read it again. Our brilliance is in ratio to our love, our ardor to our vision, 
and our vision to the degree of grace vouchsafed to us. When our flesh, sanctified and glorious, shall clothe our souls once more, our person then will be more pleasing since it's complete. Wherefore, the light generously bestowed on us by the supreme good is increased, the light of glory that shows him to us. So the more we see of God when our bodies return, we'll see more deeply. The more we will love, the deeper our ardor. Our ardor will increase. The more we love, the more we want to see. It follows then that the vision must increase as must the ardor kindled by the vision. Here, let me put it this way. Aren't there times in your life where you, you know, let it be a sunset, let it be a night out with the person you love when the sunset is glorious and for a moment you feel a kind of wonder. Or stars, you know, on, on a northern sphere where the stars are so clear. Or sometimes you can look into the eyes of a loved one and something will hit you. And you'll just, you'll feel soft somewhere inside that something happens. Imagine what it would be like seeing God. If we, if, we, if we feel an awe, I remember when we were in New England, and it's the first time in my life we saw the, um, the Fall Fest, Fall Festival, with the turning of the trees. I'd never, I, I, I was never told about them. I didn't, you know, I've seen beautiful paintings of nature. I had never in my life seen a beauty like that in nature before. The, the vermilion, the yellows, the oranges, you know, when Fall Fest hits. I said, I remember we were on the road one day driving and, there was this glorious beauty. I said it was like walking into a painting or into the outskirts of heaven. I mean, the, the beauty was such a surprise. Well, if we've had any moments like that, imagine what it would be like stepping into heaven and seeing all of that, what it would do to our eyes. Can anybody not imagine not being overwhelmed? Um, and then longing for more and then realizing, remember the when we saw Beatrice at the with the griffin and and she was looking at the griffin, Dante was looking at her, and he said, seeing satisfied every desire and set my longing on for more. Because once you see it, your, des your desire is satisfied and you long for more. So in some sense, that's what Dante is doing now. He's showing us that at each step, the glory increases, Dante's longing increases, his joy increases, um, and and he's being formed here. The, when when the body is resurrected, <clears throat> the glory will be even greater. <clears throat> Page four seventy four. Um, after hearing Solomon um, praise the body, um, something suddenly happens on page four seventy four. But Beatrice showed herself to me, smiling so radiantly. It must be left among the sights the mind cannot retrace. He can't describe it. It's beyond description. It gave me strength to raise my eyes again, and looking up I saw myself translated alone with her to more exalted bliss. I was aware of having risen higher because I saw the star's candescent smile grow redder than it ever had before. It's here that he enters um, the, um, the heaven of Mars. Now hold on, because most of this is just trying to go back and pick up where we were when we left off Solomon. I just want to introduce, before we pick up here and look at the, at the heaven of Mars, um, I want to recall for everybody a couple of terms, um, because it's, it's crucial 
to hold on to them to fully appreciate what's happening now and what's going to continue to happen as we go forward. Remember in Canto 1, line 70, Dante described himself and himself as being transhumanized. He could enter the moon. He could even see the Remember, Beatrice looked at the sun and he looked at the sun. Who can look at the sun? None of us can. Um, it was part of the talk last night. I don't have the... Um, one of the quotes, or the other night, one of the quotes I used in the talk was that line from John's letter where he says, um, <clears throat> we don't see that way now because we're in our mortal bodies, but we shall be like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And I spent a good amount of time on that on Sunday night at our talk. Um, we're in our mortal condition right now. Um... Um, but we, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Can we look at the sun right now? None of us can. Can we enter the moon? Can we enter the sun? None of us can. Christ walked on water. He rose from the dead. He could do that because he's the, he's the creator. He's the word. He's the means of creation. Walking on the water and rising from the dead only shows that he was the master of it. That's why he could do those things, right? He could cure the blind. He could... Healy chased demons away. He created the universe. He's the master of it. So it will be nothing for him to look at the sun, um, even though it's too much for us. But at this moment, entering this world of grace, we're seeing what happens to the soul as it enters heaven. That we're ending, entering a divinized world. He's transhumanized. And the, and the limitations, the natural limitations of time and space that we know don't apply. And we're going to see that more and more and more. You know that because one of the expressions of time, remember when Dante, this is in um, Cantos 10, line 34, he was no more aware of ascending than of a thought before it comes. It happened so fast. It was there already. So time as we know it is, Dante's trying to do everything he can to help us see our laws of time and space are not applying here. We've entered a supernatural realm. Remember, Dante's completed his purification in purgatory. Now he's entering a world that was only available to faith, but Dante's making it available to us through reason. Everything that Beatrice explained. And by means of everything that's happening to them. Is that clear? Because Dante's always not explaining things, but the things that he says give it away. He's in another realm. So what he's doing, and in an amazing way, we've entered paradise with him. It's what Paul did when he came back and said, I have not seen, you have not heard, except we're being allowed to experience it. Um, so he was transhumanized. He's ascending with a sense of time and space that we don't have. He's already there before he knows it. Um, on on page four sixty eight, it's just a it's his praise. He he repeats it again and again and again of the Trinity. In the middle of four sixty eight, all that which dies and all that cannot die reflect the radiance of that idea which God the Father through His love begets. 
God had an idea in his mind and incarnated it in the universe. Wait, let's go back for a second. Do you think God could have created the universe without having something there already in him? I mean, did this just happen? I mean, we know from scripture, you know, in the old Psalms that he structured, he, you know, put the water, the... So there's something in him that he expressed in creation. So when Dante says all that which dies and all that cannot die reflect the radiance of that idea which God the Father through his love begets. So this great light in him, this love that he felt for creation, and he loved it enough to send his son to redeem it. God so loved the world that he... That living light which from its radiant source streams, that's the sun, right? All that which dies and all that cannot die reflect the radiance of that idea which God the Father through his love begets. That living light, his sun, which from its radiant source streams forth its light but never parts from it, not from the love which triunites with them. That's the spirit. There is nothing going on in creation. How could it be otherwise? that doesn't reflect the Trinity. Nothing. I've been harping on this. You probably would like to turn the audio off sometimes. Like, you know, but, um, so, transhumanize. Dante's ascending. It's a different time and space. The Trinity's everywhere present. The word theosis. I used it. Father called attention to it. I was so grateful for his comment. Remember, for those of you who are there, remember what he says, the priest pronounces those words when um, when um, the transubstantiation takes place, that the wine and bread are turned into the body and blood of Christ. Um, those those words, I can't, somebody help me. What are the words the priest pronounces when um, he pours the water and something earthly combines with something divine? Um, but the word, the, the, the word of the ancient fathers, father used the word divinization. The word of the ancient fathers is theosis, T-H-E-I-O-S-I-S. Write it down. T-H-E-I-O-S-I-S. God became man so that man could become God. What's happening is we're showing the divinization that's taking place in heaven, that man is entering into Godhead. Christ took on our nature. This is so crucial. Christ took on our nature to atone for our sins. We've gone through that. Remember Canto 7 pretty clearly. When he went back to heaven, he went back with our nature assumed and asked us to follow him. So when we partake in the Eucharist, it's our faith that we actually take his real presence into us. Body, blood, body, not an idea. Not an idea. Body, soul, divinity, human, all of him. So that when we return and enter paradise, hopefully we will... <laughs> Seeing you guys in church was a joy. To see you in heaven together, put our arms around each other there, what a great joy that would be. Um, 
So theosis, God becoming man so that man could become God. And one other term, just to repeat again, this whole thing about indwelling, you know, that the in othering, that the humans are becoming one with each other. They never lose their individuality. Never. That's what the, we're not Buddhist. It doesn't all go away because the Buddhist thinks anything individual is sinful. Because so, so many problems result from our individuality. I hope everybody knows that. Um, the souls never lose their individuality while they take in other souls. So those are some of the more important things that have been taking place. I want to I get us to the level of Mars now, but before we do, that's just a, a quick kind of summary to, to make sure we're getting everything as we move up because we've been doing a lot. There's a lot there, and um, it's, it's easy to lose you know, sight of it all. But let me stop. Any questions about any of this? You know, that's, that's why, I mean, I, I, I'm sure it probably didn't mean much to you, but I'm, I'm sure it's meant more to you as we've read. But I remember saying to you, when you start the Paradiso, it's, gonna be, it's not going to be like the Inferno or the Purgatorio. It's so intellectual. It's, it's so deeply theological because we're in another realm. So our sense of, uh-oh, what's this? Hold on, you guys. Hold on. What happened? Well, what happened? Wow. I hope I'm not susceptible, liable to. Does somebody come in and doing something, Don? Something just happened. It cut off the... It says it's connecting, but it's not connecting. Or... Cold? Where'd you go? You disappeared. I had to go to the bathroom. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Can I have some wine, Doc? So soon? Too early, huh? It's early. I'm just... Never mind. Never mind. I'll get it for you in about 15 minutes. I should have... Something's happened here. Can you start over again? I tried, but it wasn't connected. I'm going to see if this helps. I, I don't know what's going on. Something, it was a warning kind of something just happened to. Mm. There are already eight people muted joined now. Giving up. I'm the same oh. way, Mike. I have yeah. an. Um, oh, you're, yeah. Oh. That is I am a little bit different, but my mine is great. It gives a synopsis of the chapter, and then it gives the chapter, and then it gives the definitions of all the little parts of it, 
but the page numbers don't match up. So yeah, yeah. Mine has a uh, in my book they call it the the argument. It's uh, about a paragraph at the beginning of each canto that tells what's going on. So that helps. Yeah. Mine is called the portable Dante. You guys are all using Musa, I, I hope. Book. And it's by that Mark Moose. Yeah. Musa. I hope you guys are all using Musa because the. But for some reason, yeah, so I just don't even try to follow. Mike, do you have the Musa translation? He's reading from it. We see you, but don't hear you. Oh, wow. Um, oops, sorry. Can you hear me now? That doesn't agree. Can, can you all hear me? You all should be using the Musa edition. There's. Lots of editions. The one we're using is the Musa, and I think in some ways it's the most colloquial and the closest to Dante's Italian. Um, the book that I recommended has got a little summary of every canto, and then it goes into it with footnotes at the bottom. But here, let's get back. I'm sorry for the loss, but let's let's get back. Um, Ed, did you have your hand up? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. That kid that asked the question that was not the kind of question you were wanting. But I'm going to throw this out. It doesn't have to be answered now. As I get caught up in my reading, I have to remind myself sometime that Dante has not really gone to hell and heaven. And I was wondering how accepted what he tells us is by the church and how well it aligns. Well, Wait, I, I myself can't be as assured as you are about going, because I, I, I mean, I'm speaking pretty, I think I know hell pretty well for my own sins and from our world, but, and, and Dante was much more learned than I am, and so he took a lot of learning, I mean, obviously you know that, we talked about the influence of Aristotle and the classifications of hell that came from classical writers in the church, so... Uh, he can show us those conditions, I believe, as accurately because he knows them himself. He, he, he's, he, I just think he's a, you know, like Shakespeare or the great thinkers. He, he, he and I think he and Shakespeare are the greatest poets because they're the ones who have most clearly revealed us to ourselves or in our depths. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be as quite as assured as you are. I'd say he knows hell very well. He knows what it feels like to be damned. I'm taking that literally, um, and he knows what it's like to be saved, and he knows what purgatory is. That is, we, one of the principles that I've been harping on from the beginning is he could have been a doctor because he's so clear on cause and effects. He looks at our nature, the way the nature that God's given us, and like a doctor who could look at us and see symptoms, he can look at their causes and see their effects. So his rendering, the, the power and accuracy with which he renders things isn't an accident. It comes from the depth of his learning. I've, I've also pressed this, it, I, I argue it seriously, that I think he, 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 he could do the work, he could, he could create a work as great as his was because of his exile that he learned the cost of things by having lost them. Mm -hmm. And I'm trusting all of us know the meaning of that, that sometimes we don't really know the meaning of something till we lose it. And when we do, we see into it more deeply. And I think because of his learning, he could do that. But the last part of your question is, um, the church was absolutely, I mean, St. Francis didn't, two years ago, 
think it was Saint Francis. Or, or Pope Francis, asked the entire Catholic word. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sneak up on Father. I meant to do it last night, but I didn't because Dante wasn't. Um, you know, Pope Francis asked everybody to read Dante. I'm, I'm wondering not only how many parishioners or you know Catholics did, but how many priests <laughs> did. Um, Dante is probably the most orthodox poet that's ever lived. There's nothing that he writes that isn't in accord with St. Thomas. One of the things that's most important to realize here is that he had St. Thomas in a way we don't. And this is really important. At that time, there was a coherent scheme of the universe. The Ptolemaic universe could be mapped out pretty easily. And there was an ordered sense of the universe and man could respond to it. Our universe was blown wide open 150 years ago. And we don't have that sense of an ordered universe. Um, so Dante had the advantage of St. Thomas and a different worldview. But I, I, I've been trying to suggest that that's not a reason for not reading it because lots of people would say things have changed. Because my contention would be that if Dante were living today with the brilliance and the power of poetry, he would have been able to take our universe and do something to reveal God at work. One of the great laments of so many Catholics today is that there aren't enough people, and I agree with them, there are not enough people working to bring science and religion together. That's a reconciliation, a job of reconciliation that has to be taken more seriously. God, God's the cause of all knowledge. He's the cause of our faith. He's the origin. Every age has got to work to reconcile whatever we learn by science and philosophy with our faith. Um, John Paul's one of John Paul's most important encyclicals was Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason. We have we have to bring those two. That's that's one of the distinguishing marks of our faith that separates us from the, the Orthodox world on one hand and a large part of the Protestant world on the other. How do we reconcile miracles with a light bulb? No, I mean, you know, we've got this amazing technical ability to 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 make underground railways and bridges and airplanes, and we've got this amazing power of technology. Our, our powers of reason are so great, but trying to bring that power and what we're able to do with it together with miracles, you know, not too many people can do that. Dante's done it in a supreme way. Let me, because let me continue. I mean, I, I, I would, because I stopped to give everybody a, a chance for quite any other questions. Hi, Maria. Welcome. I've been waiting for you. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I don't. Hi, Maria. It's good to see you again. Um, were you here earlier? Or did you, didn't you just come? Didn't you just come on? I have a group from 8 to 8.30, so that's why I always leave. Oh, you, you tell that group to get real and change its time, would you? <laughs> I told them, but they don't want to change it. No. Any questions? Any questions? We're, we're at a stopping point, Maria. I just did a long review, and then we got in. It's cut off somehow. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, it's good to see you. Um, any questions about where we are? We're about halfway through the Paradiso, so we may not finish it next week. Um, I hope you guys are okay with that. I'm enjoying this, doing this with you. It's pretty amazing stuff.
Any questions? Must be doing something wrong here. Must be doing something wrong here. Do you have a question? <laughs> um, okay, let's pick it up. Let's go to Mars. Um, couple of things. Um, let's pick up, let's see. Four seventy seven, Canto fifteen. Dante and Beatrice have just descended from um, the heaven of the sun, which is illumination. Remember that up until this point, all of the planets below the level of the sun have been in the shadow of the earth. So if the sun were shining and casting a shadow, that shadow would extend from the earth to those planets. Right? The moon, um, um, what is it, Mercury and then Venus? Or, is that right? Yeah. But, but when they hit the sun, they're hitting that source of illumination, and that was the highest of the four natural virtues. Um, what was it? Um, temperance, no, um, endurance, um, justice, temperance, and then prudence. Those are the four natural virtues. And the, the illumination of the virtue of prudence is exhibited in the heaven of the sun with Thomas and everything that we experience there with Bonaventure um, and Solomon. But now they've left the level of the sun and they're entering into yet a higher sphere of faith, of a supernatural reality. And I want to go back and just repeat what I said a minute ago. Maria, it's, it was, uh, 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 I just did an overall um, uh, um, you know, wrap-up of what we've been doing at this point. I don't want to go back through it again, but, but I want to make this point since you're here. Um, that through those first heavens, we've entered paradise. We're already there. So it can, be, it can be misleading, and it's really important for everybody to stay straight on this, because you've all had questions about this. Remember, um, Picarda came at the level of the moon, not because she was separated from the other souls in the Empyrean, but because she wanted to reveal a degree of brightness, because they're all there. Yeah, they're all there. What Dante's showing us is the whole, but in a way that we can understand it part by part. We have entered into a heavenly world. We've entered into heavenly mysteries. They're the kind of mysteries Virgil could not understand. And I just went over those four terms. Transhumanized, Dante's ascending. He's there before he even knows he's there. Time and space are not the same. The laws of time and space that apply here don't apply there. Um, his peon on the Trinity. The Trinity is everywhere in creation. It's present. We've been experiencing it everywhere. The notion of theosis. T-H-E-I-O-S-I-S. -I -I Maria, you write that down. T-H-E-I-O-S-I-S. -E theosis. D divinization. That God took on our nature. God became man so that man could become God.
Christ took on a nature. God did. He radically transformed it. And he took it back with him so that in our movement from this world to the next, past death in a resurrection, we enter into a divine life. It's not life as we know it here. One of the sad things about the Protestant world to me is that it, it, it's sort of, I, I claim that it's sort of Aryan, that it just makes Christ too human. There's a whole divine aspect that gets lost. Remember he said to the apostles and the Jews, in me you see the Father. You want to see the Father, here he is. In me you see him. Does that mean in his divine nature, in his infinite nature? No. But you certainly saw his nature, his love, the way he could master nature, heal, rise from the dead. So we're looking at things that the, the modern secular world refuses to see, opposes, actually opposes. The belief of a Catholic is that death is not the end of things, that it's the beginning of something extraordinary. Dante's taking us into that world so we can experience it, something of that nature. Okay? That's where we were. Any, any questions? I just want that to be clear before we go on. Rules of time and the laws of time and space do not apply. That's why Dante could look at the sun. That's why he could enter the sun or the moon. So it's absolutely important that we are clear in that in everything we do. Okay? We've got to hold that on. In the, I meant to say this in the talk on Sunday and I didn't, but I'm going to say it in my last talk there at Seas. Um, um, let me put it this way, because one of the reasons Father Flynn wanted to have that talk series is to get everybody back to church, because people are not coming back, sadly. And one of the points I kept making is that we don't see Christ well enough. If we saw him more often, there's no way we could stay away from the Eucharist. None. To take him in is to be one with him in his body, in, in, in the kingdom. You've been hearing me say that in that going out to the parking lot, you know, example that I give. Here's my suggestion. This is a practical side. I'm getting off track here, but when we pray, imagine more. I'm going to repeat that. When we pray, imagine more. When you look at a picture of Mary or a statue of St. Michael, know that that statue doesn't come close to the glory actually embodied in that figure. When I see a picture of Mary, I look at her and realize, in my thinking, I imagine, she is radiant with a life. There's no way that picture can convey. It, imagine that when you pray to her. Yeah? She's not as she would appear here. If you look at a statue of, of, of St. Michael, remember, angels were here and there. They're here and there. They're gone. They're not, they don't have a body. You've got to imagine St. Michael as light. You know, here, there, gone. So when you pray, imagine more, because there's more there. Take that with you. Everything Dante's doing is taking us that direction. Yeah? Is that claiming too much? I think I'm pretty consistent with Dante right here. I don't think I'm going out on a limb at all. At all. Okay, <clears throat> on page 477. The magnanimity in which true love always resolves itself, as does the other, self-seeking love into iniquity. There's either self-serving love, which points us towards hell, or self-giving love, which moves us towards heaven. Silence the notes of that sweet-sounding harp and hush the music 
of those holy strings tuned right or loosed by heaven's hand itself. Because as they're rising, as they're rising, they're they're moving towards a mystical body of angels with a sound that Dante can't quite describe. It's too above him. How could such beings be deaf to righteous prayers? Those beings who who to encourage my desire to beg of them fell silent, all of them. And right it is that he forever mourn, who out of love for what does not endure loses that other love eternally. Imagine the people who go to hell who will never know that love. And and this goes to your question, I think I mean if you look at hell it's a pretty clear depiction of what happens to a human being when he rejects love. Um, as if a star were changing places there, except that from the place where it flared up, no stars missing, and the blaze dies down. So from the right arm of the cross, a star belonging to that brilliant constellation, the one that just moved up with him, sped to the center then, down to the foot, and as it coursed along the radio lines, this gem contained within its setting seemed like fire behind an alabaster screen. So he just described this cross of lights, the top of the cross, the foot, and at the center of it, these brilliant lights. So something is being expressed in the term in terms of a cross. It 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 points to Christ ascending, moving himself. But then this is what happens. With like affection did Anchises' shade rush forth. Sorry. Rush forth, if we may trust our greatest muse, when in Elysium he beheld his son. O sanguis meus, o superfusa, gratia dea, sicut tibi cue bis unquam celi inanua reclusia. Sorry, Mike Latin. O my blood, o... Um, O grace of God poured forth beyond measure, to whom is to thee was heaven's gate opened twice. This voice speaks to him in those terms, and he puts it in terms of Anchises. What's the background? What's the illusion here? You guys should know this. What's happening? What happened with Anchises that is the context for this moment? Let me go on and read and then come back to that question. So spoke that brilliance, and I stared at him. Then I turned round to see my lady's face. I stood amazed between the two of them. For such a smile was glowing in her eyes. It seemed that my own, I touched the depths of my beatitude, my paradise. Looking at her to see himself in his depths. And then this light of joy to eye and ear began to add to his first words such things I could not grasp. His speech was so profound. It did not hide its thought deliberately. There was no other choice. Its arguments soared far beyond the target of man's mind. Then once the bow of his affection had released its love, allowing what he said to hit the mark of human intellect, the first words that I could comprehend were, Blessed be thou, three persons in one being, who showest such great favor to my seed. Whoever this person is, he's blessing the Trinity for allowing this to happen. But here's another instance of, a thought beyond man's grasp, but it's there to be seen. You know, one of the points that I've been making, it was a big point in the talk on Sunday, is, um, you know, when we look at a poem together, we, we'll talk about it and its meaning will be uncovered. It was always there to be seen. 
what's wrong with our sight? We don't see very well. None of us. We don't see very well. Um, and Dante's experiencing this again and again and again. Somebody's helping him to see into more. Who is this person who's appearing to him, and what's the context with Anchises? Chakwiaguida, is that is how you say his name? Yeah, Kachu Kachuguida. Kachuguida is Dante's great 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 grandfather, right. and in in the Aeneid didn't um, uh, Aeneas, Anchises, father, Anchises, Anchises come to see him when um, when. Gosh, uh, gosh, what is the protagonist's name again? Aeneas? Yeah, Aeneas. Why do I keep saying Aeneas when Aeneas went down to hell or am I getting the it's the underworld. It's really important that what, because what's happening historically, what's happening is, remember the first visit to the underworld that we experienced together as a class with Odysseus when he went into the underworld and met his mother, and we tried to embrace her. Virgil radically changed that. He had Aeneas go to the underworld, and there's a, already a differentiation between hell or the darkest part, Tartarus, in the underworld and Elysium Fields. Because the blessed went to Elysium Field and the, and the people who were cursed or bad men went to Tartarus where they were punished. So Virgil's already beginning to distinguish between good and evil in a way that Homer didn't. And Dante and Christianity is going even farther. And I think this goes to your question that what we're watching is um, a wisdom entering the West with respect to good and evil, heaven and hell, Greater and greater differentiation, greater understanding of subtle differences, but real differences. And Dante's been a master at showing it. The reason this is important is that when Aeneas goes to the underworld, he, he goes to greet his father. He, he seeks him out. It's his father, Anchises, who gives him his calling. He says, this is what you are to do. You are to beat down the proud. This is Rome's mission in the world, to bring justice to the world when the world doesn't know it. So he finally gets clear on his calling because it's, it's, come to, it's come in hints and shadows, but it was never made clear. And, now, and then it was. So at this moment, this is an important moment. Because, and here's one of the, I'm going to come to this at the end. I've got to be careful over time. I've got to come to this at the end. There's no way the meaning of any of this could become clear without a grasp of a tradition. One of the things we've been doing together is grasping a tradition because there's so much we miss if we don't have it. The, the, the modern world lives too much in the present. It does not carry the past with it. And the loss of that is tremendous. And maybe most especially in the things that are painful. Everything about a more modern world says, escape pain, escape suffering, make everything comfortable. We have to carry the past forward. The great epic topic theme has been from the beginning, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Need, carry the past forward, 
redeeming it while you go. The task of the epic poet is to carry the past forward, redeeming it as you go. That's been the major theme of every work. It's, is it not so here? Who helped Dante start his journey? Virgil. Who took him three quarters of the journal or the journey? Virgil. So Dante's reached this point now at the level of Mars, and he's meeting Cacciaguida, his great-great-grandfather, and it's his great-great-grandfather who finally made clear two things, his calling and his exile. Um, turn to... Um, 480, 480, which, I'm going to stay with me, please. Did you get the, um, 480, I too as man feel this disparity deeply, so only with my heart can I give thanks for your paternal welcome here. I beg of you which Topaz's living gem within the setting of this precious jewel, to satisfy my wish to know your name. Branch of my tree, the mere expectancy of whose arrival here gave me delight. I was your root. What's happening right now, it will become clear. I just love this part of the Perdisa. Dante's returning to origins. He's going back to his beginnings. Once again, Dante got this from Virgil. Remember when Aeneas went to Rome, Italy, he thought he was going to someplace new. He kept trying to find where the gods wanted him to be, and he learned that he actually was going back to his ancestral home. The Dardanus, the line of the Trojans, actually came from Italy. So he was returning home. Evander made that clear to him. It's where Eliot gets those lines. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. Dante's coming home. The theme of Nostos, the great theme of the Odyssey, coming home. Dante's returning home. Remember, the Purgatorio was that first movement away from hell, the first movement home. So, Kachiogita greets him with delight. And, um, and then um, Dante asks for... Cacciaguida to, to tell him of his own family past so that he can learn about his own family past. Cacciaguida will take him into the line that goes back past to a time that Dante would have known. On page 48 he brings him up to date after, after having described what happened to his own family, Dante's family, and everything in Florence. He says, How great I saw them once who now are ruined by their own pride, and how those balls of gold shone bright as Florence flowered in great deeds. Such were the fathers of those who today prolong some vacant office in the church and grow fat, sitting in consistory. It's another denunciation. Cacciaguida remembers a time when Florence was virtuous and good, and it's become corrupt, um, greedy, self-indulgent, there was, I mean, we can, we can look back at a time in America and say America reached a point of real greatness. Um, people were proud. We had received something. We fought for something. We were, it. We were setting off to do something that had never been done. 
It's one of Lincoln's great addresses. The great prospect of America was to create a new human being, not tribal, not, whose loyalties to whatever race would, would not keep him from being one with everybody else. America was a place where all people could come and they had the protection of the same laws. So here, once again, is another denunciation of, 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 uh, of Florence. And remember, we've been talking about this is the first commercial regime. This is the prototype. And remember, it's given to wealth and greed and pride and envy and everybody getting ahead. And it's become more and more corrupt. So, and remember, Dante's in exile. He's lost it. So um, he sees the value and also what's happened to bring Florence to this point. Um, on, page, on page 491, um, Dante's worried about certain things that are going to happen to him. He, remember, he's been getting warnings throughout the whole Commedia, these little hints that something bad was going to happen. Middle of 491, Oh, my cherished root, so highly raised that as men see no triangle contains among its angles two that are obtuse, you see, gazing upon that final point, where time is timeless, those contingent things before they ever come into true being. Because standing with God, you can stand outside of time, watching things as they come to be or not. This is pure Boethius, that still point moment. Remember, Boethius said, if you stand at that still point, it's like standing on a river. You can see what's coming, but just because you see what's coming doesn't mean you predetermine it. But it does mean you see it coming, and if you're God, you might be able to do something, or you would be able to do something with it. While I was still in Virgil's company, climbing the mountain where the souls are healed, descending through the kingdom of the dead, ominous words about my future life were said to me. The truth is that I feel my soul for square, for square against the blows of chance. He's nervous about what's going to happen. Cacio Guida's prophecy on page 493. This is the moment that corresponds to what Anchises said to Aeneas. So it, it's really important here to see that Dante can only do this because he's making that past moment in the Aeneid real now. The past is being carried forward. It's there. If we don't see it, we're missing part of the significance of this moment. It's been a part of time. God's been doing that regularly. It's what he's been doing himself. So we're seeing time multi-layered. Remember, there is no past for God. And when Christians step into eternity, they, they can see like God. They're, they're helped to see like God. 493, you shall be forced to leave behind those things you love most dearly, and this is the first arrow the bow of your exile will shoot, and you will know how salty is the taste of others' bread, how hard the road that takes you down and up the stairs of others' homes. Two, but what will weigh you down the most will be the despicable, senseless company whom you shall have to bear in that sad veil. And all ungrateful, all completely mad and vicious, they shall turn on you, but soon their cheeks, not yours, will have to blush from shame." Proof of their bestiality will show through their own deeds. It will be to your honor to have some party of your own. He describes some of the people that he will be with. But he repeats again and again. 
what what has been the typical response of prophets from the beginning of Christ's rule? People hate them. They persecute them. Remember the, all the parables about stewards. They killed them. They even killed a son. The prophets of the Old Testament were generally hated. When people bring Christ to the world, what's the world's response? Typically, it hates it. The secular mind does, does, says, this is, by the way, this goes to the talk that I mentioned that Flannery O'Connor's, The Violent Bear Away. One of the lines is that from the secular side, how does it go? There's nothing more dead than dead? Nothing deader than dead. Nothing deader than dead? That's and, the world. And nothing poorer than dead. Nothing poorer than dead. Because the world wants to be wealthy and comfortable. It wants to have things, it wants to be self-sufficient. And, and by the way, is there, I mean, is there any more evidence in that world? The wealthier you get, who needs God? If you're comfortable and secure, why turn to Him? The more wealthy, the more comfortable we get, the more self-sufficient we get, the less reason we have to turn to Him. So when people come talking about Christ, how are they typically received? The Violent Bared Away, Flannery O'Connor's great novel. It's one of the, I think it's one of the great novels of the 20th century. That's her theme. Kachiguit is saying, do not be ashamed. And when people get angry and they attack you, that's going to happen. Um, proof of their bestiality will be shown through their own deeds. It will be to your honor to have become a party of your own. All ungrateful, all completely mad and vicious, they shall turn on you, but soon their cheeks, not yours, will have to blush for shame. Go on over, 495. Um, Dante's a little bit worried about what will happen, um, and then um, Caccio Guida gives him the confidence that he needs to take this truth to the world. He cannot let what people think get in the way of the truth he's been asked to bring. Down through the world of endless bitterness and on the mountain, <clears throat> from whose lovely crown I was raised, upward by my lady's eyes, then through the heavens, rising from light to light, I learned things that were they to be retold, would leave a bitter taste in many mouths. Yet if I am timid friend to truth, I fear my name may not live on with those who will look back at these as the old days. You see the quandary that he's in. He's nervous about saying things, but he's because people are not going to like him. But if he doesn't speak the truth, he's going to feel like he's failed himself and the truth that he knows, what he knows, he's learned. The light was resplendent in the treasure I just found. There began to flash more light. Kachuguita's coming at him with more light. Um, I, um, the light that was resplendent in the treasure I just found, there began to flash more light. Just like a golden mirror in the sun. Why? Because since Kachiguita's eyes are on God, his heart is there, he's mirroring that truth. It has to reflect in him. And now he's giving it to his great-great-grandson, telling him he has got to take that light to the world. Just like a golden mirror in the sun, and then replied, The conscience that is dark with shame for his own deeds or for another's may well indeed feel harshness in your words. Nevertheless, do not resort to lies. Let what you write reveal all you've seen. 
and let those men who itch scratch where it hurts. Though in your words are taken in at first, they may taste bitter, but once well digested, they will become a vital nutriment. Your city of words, your cry of words will do as does the wind striking the hardest at the highest peaks. And this will be for honor, no small grounds. And so you've been shown here in these spheres down in the mount and in the Pain Valley Valley, only those souls whose names are known to fame, because the listener's mind will never trust or have faith in the kind of illustration based on the unfamiliar and obscure, or demonstrations that is not outstanding. He has got to go to familiar things, He's got to use the things that people know, but he's got to bring a truth um, that needs to be heard. So he's just received his calling. This corresponds to that moment that Aeneas takes as a, finally, after years of searching and failing, he, he gets strength from his father because his father knows it, and he takes that to the world. And you know it faces him then because what he faces in Rome will be the most vicious battles the most vicious conflicts that he's experienced um, since the fall of Troy. Is that clear? I mean, if we're reading it and, and the two are overlapped, we know that Dante's going to write this and the pain and struggles will just begin because he's going to take this to a world that doesn't want to hear it. Is that clear? Any questions to this point? Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, go okay, ahead. this is Melody. Um, so I was thinking about this, if Dante were writing it now um, and picking out famous people, famous so. world leaders, um, warriors, etc. I, I kind of almost got the feeling that only those rich and famous people were the ones in heaven. I mean, it seemed, it, it's like by pulling out all of these famous people, um, since I am just a little person and never done anything important, that I kind of feel like I'm left out of it. Of Dante's world? Yes, wow. of paradise. Wow, 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 wow. Well, Cacciaguida's point is that... Wait, can you hear Suzanne? Can everybody hear? Yeah. Can you speak up, Dante? Cacciaguida's point is that by using all these famous people, not just the little people, who are part of everyday life, but the famous people, that they will, their names will last for centuries, so that his work, his his poetry, and what he's what he's exposing in his poetry will be vivid in a way that it, in a way that it couldn't be if he focused just on the average person. And, and I do understand that. I really do. It's just, I guess, being contrary, um, the person that I am, I think if I ever get to meet Dante, he'll slap me up alongside the head. But I just, I kind of got that feeling the farther we get into it, that only, that only those certain people would be in heaven and I haven't done enough to earn my way up wow. there. So wow. I just thought it was interesting. It's not really a question. I just... Yeah, let me... First, wait, did Aunt, did somebody else have a hand here before I... Anybody else have a respond to Melody? Yeah, there's a lot of famous people in hell, too. 
And you want to be one of them. See, I, I was going to, yeah, I, Bob, I was going to go to exactly that point. Wait, I want to make a couple of points here, Melody, because, it, uh, again, it's just a good point. By the way, um, don't be so proud about your being contrary. Dante was contrary, and I would say, among the people that I would know, I've got to struggle with that same strain in myself, so don't, don't act like you're, because, you know, but, I mean, it's really interesting to hear, because one of the reasons I love Dante is because I, I, I so identify with ordinary people. That's where I belong. Um, it's where I, I flunked out of college, my commitment to kids in school, you know, it's, it's where I see, where I feel like I should do my work. Um, I've not gotten along with a lot of teachers. I mean, professionals are people that I generally tend to be very suspect about. Um, lawyers, doctors, teachers. Um, one, of the, one of the overriding impressions that I take away from the Divine Comedy is the greater number of people in hell are all very self-important people. That's why they're there. Um, famous people. Um, a lot of the souls in purgatory are ordinary people. They're not famous people. Um, Dante's so so clear in that. The remember, if you look at the pride, envy, wrath levels, the the prominent figures who image things are people who image pride in their excesses, and they all point to the dangers of trying to be somebody you're not or important. Um, and there are lots of people who are ordinary. Picarda, um, what's, um, uh, what's the name that I, that I so love in the... Um, Quiniza, Fouquet, there are all these ordinary people. I mean, lots of them were at court, but they weren't, you know, the famous rulers. Or So Dante um, brings us into contact with people in ordinary life. But it seems to me, the, at least my impression of the whole of the Divine Comedy, is that Dante is appealing to our human nature in its average sense, that all of us are human, we all suffer from these things, we all are given a chance to move to God, and our status, whether important or not, does not matter. What matters is the spirit in which we, the truthfulness with which we approach these things, or the, or the love. And those are not confined, neither one of those qualities are confined to important people. So the divine comedy to me, particularly, you know, when I look, when I went to that center part with Solomon and all of those things dealing with passions in the body and um, is that it's, a, it's, a, it's, as I read it, it's one of the greatest affirmations of the human person as a, as a creation of God um, in the universe. And that's a universal quality. So he's appealing to those things that are universal to all of us. We are humans. God made us. There's this great nobility. Most of the people who screw it up are screwed up because they're of their self-importance. You know, they think they're famous or big or... Um, we saw a lot of those people in anti-purgatory. I'm glad Connie saved me on that word last time because it's in my mind now. <laughs> You know, lots of the people we've been meeting are ordinary people. Um, so I'm not sure what else to say about that, Melody, because I, um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm aware of something contrary. I mean, I'm, that isn't the word I would use. And by the way, I'm just going. I was a little bit surprised to hear you say that because I about yourself. 
I, I would have said, I'm, I'm getting too personal right now, but I would have said, you're a person of real convictions and, and you have this great love of learning. You want to learn, so you ask questions a lot. The world isn't very comfortable with those things, so you may feel yourself contrary. I've never, I'm speaking personally, sorry. I've never felt you to be contrary myself. I've just, I've always thought, you've got questions, you ask, you just don't go along. That doesn't make you contrary, except from the world's point of view. I don't look at you, I think of you as a very gracious, probing um, person. So, sorry for that, but... Um, I don't see you as being contrary. I know lots of You're people. You're very kind. Mm, I'm being truthful. I know people that are really contrary. I wouldn't put you in that group. Um, well, I think it's funny farther down. Um, I really made a note of chapter 19, which I know we're not there things. yet. When uh, Beatrice is, was, is trying to get Dante, go ahead, speak your mind, ask those questions. And then he asked the question about... It would God really send a good man to hell um, if he didn't know Christ because it wasn't that person's fault? And then they're like, how <laughs> dare you ask that question? And they were, you know, don't question God's judgment. So, again, it's just maybe I'm... Here, let me, let, me, let me blow some of this out of the water. I'm glad... Here. Okay. In this, coincidentally, coincidentally, um, we're, sorry, when they... Sorry, I've got to find this right. Four ninety-nine. When they ascend to the heaven of Jupiter, I love this. By the way, this is—I think this is going to answer some of your questions, but we'll—we'll we'll see. Because I already—I'm—I've known you long enough to know that there's no way I'm ever going to answer all your questions. That's just not going to happen. Um, here, they come to the level of Jupiter. Um, and um, again, it's hard to describe what happens, but um, but a number of things happen here that are that I think interesting. It's interesting, Melody. They're going to go to your question somewhat. Middle of five hundred, an eagle appears that spells out through the souls this statement in the middle of five hundred. Um, the first the first words. Of the message, verbum noun, diligete, justituum, then came qui judicatis terum. I'd be glad for anybody's correction of my efforts at Latin there. And in the final letter, in the M of the fifth word, they stayed aligned, and Jove's silver became the background of their gold. So it's an image of God's justice. We caught an earlier glimpse of that. Now we're getting a deepened glimpse of it. The eagle is going to appear... And he's going to deal with some of Dante's questions. They're close to what you're asking. Um, but it, and, and it's interesting, the answer that God's going to give Dante on page 501. <clears throat> um, Dante's got this question that he's had forever. And um, he hopes he can get an answer. 501 towards the bottom. It used to be that wars were waged with swords, but now one fights with holding here and there. The bread our fathers love denies to none. Christ didn't come for the wealthy, came for everybody. By the way, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, I really don't want to be misunderstood here. <clears throat> he did not exclude the wealthy. 
What he did say is it's going to be hard for some of them to get, you know, but through the eye of a needle. But God can do anything. He made it clear wealth will not get in the way. What's going to get in the way is whether somebody has faith. So the whole appeal of Christ was to everybody, whether you were rich or poor. But he knew that very often the wealth would get in the way because people because of people's pride. Um, and you who write only to nullify, remember that Peter and Paul, who died to save the vineyard you despoil, still live. Dante is relentless in his attacks on the corruptions in the city and in the church. Those are the two major sources of problems in the world. The state, the church. You will answer, I have in my heart to set on him who chose to live alone and for a martyr's crown was danced away. You know nothing of your fisherman or Paul. That's a pretty severe condemnation. 502. There before my eyes with wings spread wide, that splendid image shone, shaped by the souls, rejoicing in their interwoven joy. It is so clear that the ending of... I don't know what to call it. The indignation of heaven at the corruption of the world. The souls in heaven are indignant towards men of power in the, in the state and in the church for what they do. They were set there like splendid rubies, lit each of them by a gleaming ray of sun, which was reflected straight into my eyes. And what I have to tell you here and now, my, no tongue is told or ink has written down nor any fantasy imagine it. It's not to the wealthy or the poor, it's to anybody. You know, it just depends on how much a person loves learning or loves God. For I could hear the beacon see it move. Now this goes to one of these issues that I've been describing and trying to take at pains tonight. The laws of time and space don't apply. A divinizing is going on. Um, indwelling is going on. We are in a strange place. The, the things that we do, we have to break free of to get into this. Language is one of them. Language is one of them. Remember, I've been saying all along, Dante keeps using these reflexive verbs. I am in me you. You are in othering me. I, God is in God in him. He's using language in a way nobody has ever, ever done. How could he, how could he get us there if he didn't do that? We wouldn't see it. It just wouldn't be part of our experience. Now it is. For I could hear the beacon see it move. I heard its voice use words like I and mine, when in conception it was we and ours. Okay, take a moment. What's going on? What is that saying about heaven? When the eagle spoke, he says, I heard its voice use words like I and mine, when in conception it was we and ours. Remember, we've been, I've been saying that in our world, we tend to objectify things. We get things in our head. So the danger is we turn each other into objects. More dangerously with those we love. You know, the whole call is to indwell, to be one with another, to be just, to work for justice, to bring a mercy. So that we become more one, a part of each other. We grow, we grow together in some way. In that world, it's I... It, I object, a tree, my wife, my husband, my car, my house, it's mine. 
things become objects. We objectify them. You know, this is a function of our language. Yeah. But here he says, when he heard the eagle speak, it used words like he used words like I and mine, but what he heard was we and ours. What's going on? What's Dante showing us with once again with what he does with language? Connie, what's he doing? It's like that indwelling, I guess. The indwelling with everybody, you know, the um, I and you, you and me, the, you know, the indwelling is all I can think of. Yeah. Don't sometimes, I mean, I, this is a, I'm, it's probably a bad time to ask the question, but aren't there times sometimes when you feel like language is inadequate, that if you feel one with another, and I, or here, you know, the churches often talked about using um, I, thou, that we find another way of talking to the other, and thou conveys a reverence or a depth of respect or love that you doesn't. So Dante's showing us that language here is, and once again, like other things, inadequate, that even though the eagle is saying I and um, mine, what is expressing is that we, because there's no way, there's no way in heaven that our individuality will separate us from people. So language there is inadequate to express the individual and, I mean, I think you're right on, Connie, is this sense of indwelling, of being one with another. So what's being expressed, conveyed, is we and our. Suzanne and I are really conscious of this. I mean, we've, we've, had, we've had to, you know, to take a look at it. There's, we're in a marriage. It's so easy to say, mine, my son, my car, my house. When it's ours, our son, our house. How do we, how do we find words that protect our individuality and still convey something of our oneness with another? Let me put it that way. Is that clear? Yeah? So once again, now Dante's learning. Here's, but here's where it goes, three, four, four, 504. Dante's got this question that's been troubling about baptism um, and other things. How, how can God damn the unbaptized? What a cruel God. I, I think this goes a little bit to your question. Um... 504, I, I don't know that you're going to like his answer, <laughs> Melody. Um, 503, then it said, He who with his compass drew the limits of the world and out of chaos. By the way, that is, so, that is such a, that's Job's question. You know, and, and at the end, God said, Who do you think you are anyway? Asking, you know. But the interesting thing about that, even while he's schooled, he, by the way, I don't think Dante's going to slap you upside. He's not going to do that. He's, he's going to put his arms around you and hug you. Um, precisely because you ask it. God loved honesty. He loved the Jews when they were honest. Even I mean, he, Abraham took him on. You know, what if it's ten? What if it's five? What if, you know? Um, so, um, but anyway, I don't think I don't think I don't think um, I don't think Dante would slap you. Um, 
I think he'd, he'd probably embrace you. But that was Job's question. And it's interesting that even though God gets shows his anger at Job, you know, who do you think you are? He makes it clear that all of his friends were wrong, flat wrong. That Job was closer to something genuine than his friends, you know, with the questions that he asked. So I'm thinking of that when he says, you know, at the bottom of 503, he who with his compass drew the limits of the world, because that sounds like right out of Job, and out of chaos brought order to things hidden revealed, 504, could not impress his qualities so much upon the universe, but that his word should not remain in infinite excess. No matter how much the world captures of Christ, he's always going to exceed whatever we can make of it because he's so much greater than the universe. The proof of this is in the first proud one, the highest of all creatures, who plunged down unright because he would not wait for light. Who's that referring to? Is that clear? Lucifer. Yeah. He was too proud in wanting to know, and, and St. Thomas's argument, Lucifer fell in the first instant. He would not acknowledge his creaturely status. He wanted to be autonomous like God. The proof of this is that the first proud one, the highest of all creatures, who plunged down him right because he would not wait for light. He wanted, a, he wanted something now. Hence, clearly, every lesser nature is too small a vessel to contain that good which knows no bounds, whose measure is itself. Is there any measure that can apply to God? None. He's being itself. No word can compass it. He is his own measure, whose measure is itself. Therefore, our vision, which can only be one of the rays that come from the prime mind, that's God himself, which penetrates every created thing, cannot of its own nature be so weak as not to see that its own principle is far beyond what our eyes can perceive. And so the vision granted to your world can no more fathom justice everlasting than the eyes can see down to the ocean floor. While you can see the bottom near the shore, you cannot out at sea. But nonetheless, it is still there, concealed by depths too deep. Is that metaphor clear? To press, press God is to take that position, I mean, too far. I mean, it's to take that Joe position, you know, trying to straighten things out. When God makes it clear, who do you, you know, were you there when the foundations, this is a beautiful image because it's saying, there's these infinite depths to this ocean. We know that, I've said this before, mystery implies more to be known. All mystery implies more to be known. That's what mystery is. It's intelligible. God is pure intelligibility. He's like the sun. We can't see it. It's too bright. Even if we're in his presence, I, I, I can't believe we will see the infinite. I, that just boggles me. I can't, I can't get my head on that. But, but what he's saying is there are these infinite depths. We know they're there. They exist. We're at the shoreline so we can see the sand, you know, the depth, the bottom, right up. But the farther out you get, the more lost you get in those depths. That's why the sea has been such an important image in all our works. The Odyssey, the Aeneid, the T Shakespeare's Tempest, um, Moby Dick. You know, we could go on. So is that image clear? So man has to be careful in his quest for knowledge because we can expect, like Lucifer, we can expect too much instead of being patient. And it seems to me one of the beauties of this poem is that Dante has had to learn to be patient with Virgil and now he has to be patient with 
Beatrice, that he's slowly learning things. Because there's too much there to learn all at once. No, no human could comprehend this. I'm trusting everybody knows that right away. We've been going into depth step by step by step. Here's where I want to go to close. Okay. Oh, just, you, so good. Just Melody, just to speak to your concern about the little man and all of us who identify with the little man. Um, the people who are named in Dante um, are named, um, and they may have s historical significance or not. But there are lots of people who are not named. The eagle is formed by myriads of souls. I mean, the image of the eagle is formed by myriads of souls who are not named, but they're part of the image of God's justice. And I think that's true all the way through, that the people who jump out at us in Dante are people who are named, but there are all of these other souls whether they're in hell or purgatory or heaven, who are not named, but they're there. Which means everybody. Yeah. All of us, one place or the other. I'm so glad Suzanne said that. I, I don't know that you guys remember this back when we did the Iliad together, but one of the things I love about Homer, I remember saying this to the class, you, you probably won't remember it because it was not a big thing, but Homer never describes a battle without naming and most of the most of the men are ordinary. They're soldiers. They are the great heroes, the, the, the men who stand out. Because that's what the hero. Remember, in Homer, means somebody coming out of the crowd, because the crowd is anonymous. That's that's where you go to hide. The what Homer calls the pack. When the men are retreating, they retreat into that pack. That's where they here. They don't ask questions. Um, they retreat. Um, but the men who come out are named. And it's not just the heroes. There's no man who dies in the Iliad. Not a single person, famous or infamous, not, not known or known, who is not named. Because for Homer, every single person matters. I believe that's true for Dante. Absolutely. Um, he's taking Christ to him, and, and he knows Christ is offered to everybody. Here's where I wanted to go. Um, to end our sorry um, I'm going to do this really quickly the, the eagle is before I'm going to do this and leave you with a question or maybe I don't know we'll see leave you with a question he's looking at the eye of the eagle on page 510 and he names those it, I'm so glad what Suzanne said because he, several people that make up the eye of the eagle, eagle are named Trajan, Hezekiah Constantine, this is on page 510, William of Sicily names these figures, and he names Riffius in the middle of 511. Um, and we're going to get the story of Riffius and Trajan, because both Riffius, here goes, Melanie, coming out of the circle that way, or the, you know, asking these questions. Here are those two men, both of whom are pagans, 512. Trajan was a pagan. Riffius was a pagan. Yeah? Before Christ. What are they doing in the eye? In fact, I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to leave you guys. This is a good place to leave it. What are these guys doing in the eye of the eagle? In fact, let me, let me, because I wanted to, let me leave that. We're going to stop because it's time, and I'm glad to leave you with a mystery. Um,
I'm giving a quiz beginning next class. Who are, who are Ripheus and Trajan and what happened to them? Here, I'm going back to the Aeneid to help you out because this is the question that I'm going to start with next week. In the Aeneid, here, here it is again, you know, this, this idea that I've been pressing so much so often is there's just so much we don't see without a tradition. We're half blind. The Catholic Church cannot be the Catholic Church without its tradition. Cannot. It's one of the things that affirms its faith. It's, it, it's there. The tradition was already there before the scriptures were written and it continued in the writing. So for the modern, say a Protestant, to say scripture, it's sola scripture, scripture alone makes no sense. Scripture is a reflection of a tradition that was continued and something happened and continued to continue. Tradition is a part of our church. It's a part of our faith. One of my concerns coming into the church is that our, our faith is losing a sense of its tradition. We're living in a modern America that says tradition is worthless. Have faith alone. That's it. The Catholic is saying, no, if, uh, if that's all you have, and that's you'll, if, you, if you live it, you'll be with God. But it's also saying there's something more to our faith, and it's real. The authority of the church is vested in that tradition. It's a part of it. Um, so, so much of what we've been doing is, is Dante carrying that past forward. And here, in this particular, and it's interesting, Melanie, that you should be you know, raising this question that you do right at this point. In the eye of the needle, the eagle, there are these five souls. Two of them are Trajan and Ripheus. Both of them were pagans. This is paradise. And Dante had this question, what about the unbaptized? And now he's raising this question, what about those pagans who lived before Christ? You mean to say they're damned too? I mean, that's basically, he's not putting it that way. I'm being sort of modern and blunt, but yeah, that's his concern. Dante's just given an image of God's wisdom like an ocean. We know the bottom's there, but we can't presume to ever grasp it. It's too deep for us. We're by the shore. We can see into its depths. We know it's intelligible. It's not chaos. It's not meaningless. It is meaning itself, but its depths exceed our powers to grasp it. Yeah? So here are these two men. Now here's Riffius, and I'm going to give this because I want to see what you guys make of this. I, I think what Dante's doing here is really funny. You know that he loves Virgil. You know how much he loves him. In the Aeneid, in book two, when Aeneas is landed at Carthage, because remember, he's been at wandering trying to found a city, and he ends up at Carthage, and then he's going to have this long affair with Dido. And, and, but he goes to Dido's court, and he's describing the fall of Troy, how the Greeks, the Greeks tricked the Trojans, and how the Trojans were too pious, too susceptible of, in their religious beliefs, so that they believed a liar when they shouldn't have. Remember, um, the Sinon, the guy who lied to them, was using their religious beliefs to manipulate them, to accept the horse, and because it was a gift by the gods. And so it was a form of blasphemy, but the Trojans gave into it, and they lost their city. Their whole way of life was destroyed on religious manipulation. When Aeneas is recalling the destruction of Troy, remember that the, the Trojans finally get into, or the Greeks get into the city, 
They're killing everybody. And at one point, Aeneas says that several Trojans, a handful, put on Greek disguises to trick the Greeks and then were discovered. Okay? In the book that we had, it's the uh, Fitzgerald translation. It's on page 48, if any of you guys still have it. This is what Aeneas is describing. He's describing the fall of Troy, exactly what went on, buildings crumbling, people getting killed, Prime is going to be... It's a painful scene to watch Prime get killed. But here in his description of the destruction of Troy, we've got this description. As when a cyclone breaks, conflicting winds will come together, west wind, south wind, east wind, riding high out of the um, Dowland, forest, bend and roar and raging all in spume, Nereus with his trident churns the deep. Then some whom we had taken by surprise under cover or might throughout the city and driven off came back again. They knew our shields and arms for liars now because remember they disguised themselves as Greeks for a while. Their disguise is uncovered and now they're vulnerable. They knew our shields and arms for liars now, our speech alien to their own. They overwhelmed us. Corobius fell at the warrior's goddess's altar, killed by Penelaos, and Ripheus fell, a man unique, uniquely just among the Trojans, the soul of equity, but the gods would have it differently. And he goes on. Now I want to read that one more time. You can find if you still got your copy of the Aeneid, you can it's in book two, line five fifty or so. They overwhelmed us, Corabus fell at the warrior goddess's altar, killed by Penelaos, and Ripheus fell, a man uniquely just among the Trojans, the soul of equity, but the gods would have it differently. And then it goes on. Why did Dante choose Ripheus? He was not a famous figure. By the way, he's not Trajan. Trajan was an emperor. Ripheus was a common soldier, just a common man. Why is this guy in heaven? He's a pagan. Remember what Dante's been saying so often all along, and, and this goes so directly to your comment, it's so easy for Catholics to say, and they often do, he's pagan, he's going to go to hell. Dante's been clear about this. I mean, the dangers for Catholics making this, over and over again, he's, he's been saying, be careful of the judgments you jump to. You know, God is the one who can see things. We need to be careful. And here, he's going directly to this question. Two pagans are in the eye, in the eye of the eagle in paradise. So either there's something wrong with God or there's something wrong with the way we look at things. <laughs> so, and, and, I'm, and I'm going back to the member, Pope Francis asked everybody in our church, he, I, he's never done anything like that. I can't remember a Pope doing that. He asked everybody in our church to read Dante. That's how much Dante stands for the center of our church. Okay, what's Dante doing with Riffius and Trajan? <laughs> um, don't, don't answer. I'm not going to answer. I'm giving you guys a quiz next week when we meet. Maria Cecilia, you had better not be late to duck this quiz, young lady. We didn't talk about baptism. About what? Baptism. Oh, yeah, we're not. We're going to... We're going to wait until next week. Yeah, the, what's Dante doing with... What's God doing here with, you know, 
the unbaptized and these pagans. So here, I think these go to your question somewhat, Melody, that here Dante's got this question about the unbaptized and God and, and um, un, or pagans who lived before Christ. And by the, this is absolutely orthodox. This is our church. It's not Dante. It's not Dante being contrary or, you know, standing. Out. He is at the center of our church here. So, what are we learning from this scene about God's justice and His mercy? Let me leave that with a question. Okay. Any any questions you guys want to leave us with before we leave? Because we're we're past our time. I didn't want to. I wanted to get to this point, so I'm glad we're here. I'm not sure we'll finish next week, but if you could try finishing, we'll we'll. I, I'd, I'd be surprised if we finish, but if you could try to finish it, we will finish Dante next week or the next week for sure. Our, our work with Dante is coming to an end. Any questions before we leave? Any or observations or comments you guys want to make? This. I was just I was just curious if this is where you talked about Virgil when Dante left Virgil in Purgatory. Um, you said you had hope that maybe Virgil would make it to heaven. I'm wondering if this is the part of the book that made you think that, or we could talk about it next week. I just contrary is not the contrary is not the right word for you. Sneaky, <laughs> sneaky, maybe. Um, here, everybody's turned to five five twelve. By the way, this goes to Flannery O'Connor's novel. You know that, that I mentioned in the talk on Sunday. The, the the title of her novel, which I think is one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, she puts she puts all the men to shame. She just puts them in Hemingway, Henry James, Conrad. The Violent Beard Away, I think, is one of the most important novels of the and it's just not going to get the. In fact, she's on the blacklist now. She's been put on the index by the left. Um, she's somebody you're not supposed to read. Um, Anyway, the title for her book, The, the Violent Buried Away, its central concern is prophecy and baptism. And there's nothing explicitly religious about it at all. Well, no, it's not ecclesial. It's not set in a church setting. It's not in a church setting. These are, these are ordinary people. But the central issue is um, it's a conflict between a world that denies Christ and a world that believes Christ. The two major characters stand on that conflict. So it's a drama between them. It's an extraordinary. Uh, it's, really, it's really an important work. The title of her novel comes from this line from Matthew. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. If we're going to give a quiz next week, it would be on that. What does that mean? The, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. Melody, ask your question. I'm because I'm, I'm my mind is ask the question you just asked a second ago about Virgil. Oh, whether he would make it into heaven. Well, you, you talked about there were clues in uh, the Paradiso that you thought maybe he would. And let me leave it. Can you let me? But here, that's I, fine. That's yeah, because I. But let me leave you with this line on page four five twelve. Um, this is still we're still in the level of justice so this is really good this, this canto is going to focus the, some of our discussion next week so the question of the baptized the question of virtuous pagans 
who weren't there, who, who weren't baptized. And then on 512, um, I see that you believe these things are true because I say them. How many people just accept them? I mean, lots of people do, particularly Catholics. So the church says, we believe it. But you see, you see not how. Thus, though they are believed, their truth is hid. Very often people hear something, let's say they're Catholic or Protestant. Somebody will say it, and they'll believe it. And, but will they see the meaning of it? What's underneath the surface? You do as one who apprehends a thing by name, but cannot see its quiddity. You can't see its essence. You can't go to the meaning of it unless somebody explains it for its sake. Okay, here's, here's the line I want you guys to hold on. Regnum salorum. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope. Only these powers can defeat God's with will. Not in the way one, one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat, and so defeated it defeats through its own mercy. The first soul of the eyebrow and the fifth cause you to wonder as you see this realm. Okay, Trajan and Rephius, or uh, Rephius. What is Dante saying here that's from that line in Matthew? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. What is the meaning of that line from Matthew, and what light does it throw on these questions that Dante's bringing to the eagle? about um, the unbaptized um, and the virtuous pagans. Okay? Good stuff. These are... Uh, any last questions before we part for the week? I'm looking forward to the session on these because these to me are... So they're so good. You guys have a good week. Um, stay safe. Stay safe. Keep us in your prayers, if you would, and we will do the same with you guys. Um, see, yeah. See you guys Monday. Okay. You all be safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.